You're listening to Think, Think, Thought, a podcast about building thinking classrooms and teaching math. Hi, everyone. Kyle here again with Megan. Hi, guys. And we're back doing our little series on Peter Lilladal's Building Thinking Classrooms. Today, we're talking about Chapter 5. Megan, can you set us up for what this episode is going to be all about? Yeah, so Chapter 5 uh, revolves all around how we answer questions in a thinking classroom. Because, you know, traditionally, typically in any mathematics classroom, I think teachers answer somewhere between 200 to 400 questions. I think kindergarten is like a million or something per day. But um, yeah, and so it does take a lot of time. So we have to figure out like, how are we answering these questions? Yeah, and we answer a lot of those questions. Like you said, a million might seem low for some of us. <laughs> like things like that. Um, but, you know, what Peter identifies, and I think it's key to this, is that answering some of these questions is in complete opposition of getting our students to think and that goal that we're trying to accomplish through all these practices. So what are we going to do about it? Something to think about, too. He talks about how, you know, by answering questions, we really start to undo a lot of the good work we're already doing in thinking classrooms. And that's the last thing we want to do because there's a lot of shifts happening. And it's kind of all for nothing if that's what's going on. So he outlines that there's generally three types of questions that we see in our classroom. Yeah. Do you want to walk us through what those three types are or at least the first? Yeah. So the three types of questions are proximity questions, stop thinking questions, and keep thinking questions. And proximity questions, I think when I think back to before my thinking classroom times and even during, these are the questions that I like hear all the time and like ring so true, which is just you walk past a group or a student and they ask a question because that is the most, you know, studently thing to do is to say, ask a question because just because you're physically close to them proximity wise. Yeah. And I really like that term studently, right. And studenting. And we've talked about teachering before too, but Peter goes into some of the theory and the, the research behind some of that. He talks about this idea of role theory, which is this like this, this subconscious drive we have to conform to these roles that exist. And what a better way to be a student than to ask a question. And that puts a student back into that role, that position of being a student. And then, you know, conversely, teachers, the best way to get into the role of being a teacher is to answer a question because that's what we're expected to do. We don't think about this, but it is something that happens a lot in our classrooms, which is really interesting. And, And the example I think he shares, and I've seen it, I think a kid's maybe on their phone under their desk. So I circle yeah. that side of the room and as they get closer, there's a little bit of a shuffle. And then all of a sudden they're asking me this really interesting question or it seems like that's really interesting. It really, it's not something that they're going to use in the end. Um, so then they do that. They ask the question. I answer the question. We all feel good and we go about yep. it. Ways. Woohoo. Go home feeling great. <laughs> yeah. But, but Peter said, you know, in their research, they would go over right away and ask that student, oh, like, what did you get the answer? What are you using? student forgot already like they're not yeah. even using that information students are like what question exactly what? so it, it's <laughs> just about getting back into these roles and getting into alignment so these are definitely not in the best interest of thinking but maybe there are some instances when proximity questions are relevant yeah i know that we had sophie bresciani was on the podcast from like last year too and um she had she was working at the time at one of our community schools here in regina she was working with more of uh, an at-risk community of students 
And she made a good point about how like sometimes students ask questions just to like build that relationship. And like, I think that is really, really valid to be like, sometimes kids are just seeking out connections, but it doesn't mean we we necessarily have to answer that question to therefore build that relationship, right? Because, and spoiler in case anybody hasn't like read the um, book is you shouldn't be like, I'm answering these proximity questions. You should be deflecting, asking a question back or just not answering at all. And so I think that in those instances where you have students who are just trying to build a AM connection, you can still do that, Yeah. but you don't have to do it by answering their question. Like maybe ask them something about themselves or ask them a question about their work. Do something else that maybe puts, puts them talking about things instead of you talking at them. I like that. I think that's a good, um, good rule of thumb. Maybe respond depending on the kid you have in front of you and build that relationship because that's going to be so critical. He talks about another type of question that we see in our classrooms. Yeah, that's the um, stop thinking questions. Like, for instance. Do we have to do this? Is this going to be on the test? Is this right? Are we done yet? And my favorite, how much time is left? Oh, yeah. How much time is left? What time is that? Oh, God. Worse. And we all know this as teachers and they make our blood boil because we know the point of this is that they want you to answer it so then they don't have to keep doing what they're doing. So they can, in this case, stop thinking. We, you know, the kind of questions we really don't want to see popping up or re- respond to in our classrooms. Um, yeah. And the funny part about these stop thinking questions is the ones that are like, um, do we have to do this? When's like lunch and those kinds of questions. Those are like easy to um, deflect. I find the question that's the hardest to deflect is, um, is it right? Yeah. That's really, really tough. When students start asking about their work and that one is like so difficult to not respond to. And I would say out of every practice, this is the practice I still struggle with. And like, I would like to think I'm like deep enough, like I'm into this, but this one is really tough because you just sometimes want to comment on the student's precision and their like accuracy. And especially if our students are so used to like finding out if things are right and now we're flipping that norm as well right so they don't know if they're right or wrong we're just asking them to keep going and that that's a tricky thing to navigate and i can speak to that in a different way as well because i get to run professional development with our teachers <laughs> and i can tell you like this is not just a student problem this is a thing our teachers get stuck on and i was guilty of it early on in my thinking classroom journey like i wanted to know if my answer to 3d tic-tac-toe solutions was the correct one and peter would not <laughs> I tell always me. want to know but i've shifted that because i got so much more value and so much learning out of not getting the answer and having to think deeper and more about it. So sometimes this is, this is really hard to not answer and it's really difficult for everyone involved. But you know, if you're playing the long game, which we all are as teachers and in education, you want to find other ways to handle this. So let's talk about the keep thinking questions because that's the last type of questions that he lays out for us. Yeah. So the keep thinking questions are just questions where students may be asking for um, clarification or some sort of extension to keep their thinking going. So for instance, I would give an open middle and it's like using the numbers one to 10, but there's like two statements there. They might come up and say, can we use like one twice? And I'm like, no. And they're like, okay, that's fine. Cause that is them asking a question to further their thinking versus stop thinking. They're trying to pass the buck. They're like, I'm done. I think, can you just do it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And what I, what I really like about these keep thinking questions is that we actually end up starting to see less and less of them. The whole idea here, is that as we do more thinking classroom practices, our kids become a little more confident and definitely less dependent on you. 
And sometimes they'll just like, I'm going to go at this. And if it's wrong, that's going to be okay because I know my teacher's either going to come by and correct me or they're going to be okay with me going down this other path of thinking, which is something that will end up being celebrated, which we don't typically do in a traditional math class. So I'd like, if we can emphasize these kind of questions we're going to get and this kind of thinking, we're going to get even more thinking. Oh, yeah. One of my absolute favorite things is when students will try to figure out what the next thing will be. Extension. Because, right? And so, yeah. And so I remember I was doing this thing. I do like this task that is in the book. And it's like, how many ways to make five and 10 and 20 and 40? And what about 100? And what about like 99? And I remember going up to this grade three boy and he's like, we know. 100 i'm sure like that's like i'm coming like next and he's like we get it okay but that's great because you're right they stop asking these keep thinking questions because they just kind of know the new game and they know there's always something coming next and they're trying to anticipate which is a really cool like metacognition for them to like be, be practicing i think so like and that's something we don't see when we're giving kids worksheets or textbook <laughs> questions or whatever they're not guessing they're not predicting the next question and trying it right so that's that's something to celebrate right here. And that's a win if we can get kids going yeah, in that direction. Um, so. so Peter talks about like, well, the best way to handle this in a lot of cases is either to not answer it, which we'll get into a little bit more later, or respond to their question with a question. And he gives us a bunch of examples from the book. And maybe we'll share those. If you're looking for them in the book, they're on page 89 and 90. Um, the first one he shares, you know, kids ask you a question. You'd be like, isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Can you find something else? Can you show me how you did that? Is that always true? Why do you think that is? Are you sure? Does that make sense? Why don't you try something else? Why don't you try another one? And this is my favorite one because kids are always stumped by it. Are you asking me or are you telling me? They're just, they don't know how to respond to that question, but it's such a, it's so much gold. Um, Mm -hmm. Or sometimes a fantastically one is just to go, hmm. (laughs) Yeah. That's it. That's it. Okay. Kind of look at it. Yeah. And they go, oh, God. (laughs) Start scribbling back on their face. And at first, they're a little shocked by that response, right? They're not sure, like, okay, what does that mean? Because they're trying to to find out what this means in their studenting role, right? Um, Because the game has changed a little bit. But they start to learn over time that that's not a bad thing, right? Yes. Because they're so used to the only good thing in a math class is getting a check mark or being told you're right. Now we're shifting that to be something totally different. Well, the other part I love about that too is that sometimes you have students who, when you first start this, they will not know how to respond at all. And their confidence will be really, really low. And you, and which is probably why this comes in the second toolkit, right? Because you need them to kind of build this up. And we'll talk about the toolkit in chapter 15, I think. But I do think that the reason why this comes in that second toolkit is because at first, the kids don't really have their confidence to like stand up to you. But I was in a five six the other day, and some kid was like arguing with me, and I was like, "I love this." You're like, "You're wrong, Mrs. G." I'm like, "Okay, That's you're right. like fully ready to like defend your position, which is really, really, a, you know, a beautiful thing." And I do think, and I will say this as a like note is when when you're trying to not answer these questions. This practice seems really simple and something that you would think would just happen like naturally. It's so hard to do and it happens unintentionally. And I just don't think we quite understand the harm we can be causing kids when we do answer these, like stop thinking questions. Like I think about 
a time recently where a group came around and they wanted to know like if their question was right or wrong and i just slipped out of me that it wasn't right and some girl was like aha and i was like whoa wait a minute yeah this isn't a like you versus them like this is a team thing right and so it's so intentional it's so tough but it's just one of those things that we just got to really really work on it's really hard and it circles back i think to a bit of that what we talked about earlier like the relationships are so important yeah. Your kids need to know that you care about them as people before you can start to really build this. In. So as as we always find a lot of these things in math boil down to having good relationships with your students and taking that time and effort to know them, which I think classrooms can really allow you to do in a deeper way. But mm-hmm. it's one thing to be top of mind. One thing I just want to mention before we keep going through this is if you're, you know, those those questions to respond to questions with the illustrator from this book, Laura Wheeler put together like a little wallpaper for your phone that has these little prompts for you front and, and ready for you. So you can just glance at your phone. Because what I found is I started to keep going to the same one every single time. And the kids knew what question I was going to ask them when they asked me a question, which was like, <laughs> it was fine, but it was kind of getting a little dull. So it was a good way to switch it up. Um, and the thing is, the more you do this, the more you're going to come up with your own questions. You don't have to stick to these 10 or whatever. You can, you're, you're going to come with your own. And, and I think that's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. And yeah. Like we said, kids stop asking too. Kids know you're not going to answer, so they stop asking. Like, it's fine. (laughs) Now, the other thing that Peter talked about in the book, which is really interesting and really counter to everything we feel as teachers and maybe even if learned as teachers, trying to be supportive of students, is that when you answer a question with a question or answer a question with a, you know, a smile or a a confident you can do this or whatever you might be doing to not answer the question, you need to get out of there. You need to walk away. You need to give the kids some space to process that. And I would say for me, this is so hard because I like, I want to see what they do next. Um, but I need to, I've learned, I need to do that from a different spot in the room. Maybe while I'm standing in near another group, I can, I can be watching that. But Megan, you, you, you've done a lot of work with our primary teachers and teaching primary. How does this work with them? Yeah. Well, so number one, if you smile and walk away from a kindergartner, you're going to have 10 slaps to your butt in a, five seconds because they'll be following you all around the room and they're only like yay high so they're not so tall so that's not great um but i do think that when you say things like like um i have complete confidence in you i think you are doing great some sort of thing like that and then walking away i think that does trigger those well two things because these early mathematicians they're trying to build their relationship with math a lot of these like and i and i've said this so many times to so many people and this sounds horrible but like the sevens and eights in high schoolers they're kind of almost broken and like they have a relationship with math they already kind of know it whereas when we're dealing with these k12s they don't really have a relationship and they're still trying to build that relationship and so having you say that they're doing well or that you trust them but then walking away gives them two kind of like two indicators for them to know that you do actually trust them Mm -hmm. i trust you but but i have also walked away because i trust you it's not i trust you but i'm going to lord it over you for five minutes and watch exactly what you do you're backing up your words with an action there and not only are you saying you trust them but you're showing them and you're walking the walk right that's a key piece there that a lot of us maybe miss at times kind of like we say you know, we want our kids to take risks, but then we don't give them the space to do that. This is a this is a way we're literally giving them some space here. Um, so it's like all the other chapters, one of my favorite features of this book, Peter gets into the Q&A. There's a few of those questions we just wanted to chat about because they, they were really interesting. And the first one was, what do we do when we have that group that doesn't accept our non-answer? How do you handle that, Megan, with your students? Well, 
And so, and we've said this lots before, but it comes down to the relationship, right? Like if anything anybody says will be slightly different for everybody because you need to be able to read the room. Like I know if a kid who is, who's like upset, like there's one kid and I don't, and he's in a friend's class, but we know we can push him and not answer things. And he's like angry, but he's like funny, like I'm angry and he like loves it kind of. But there's also kids who like, you're like, oh, like you're visibly upset. Like we need to like deal with this. And so I think it's also playing that game. But I think after a while, and obviously we've talked about this before, is like you can like let them know. It's like, I'm not going to answer like this question. Just straight up say, you can ask me 100 times, but I'm not going to answer it. But then also the question remains is like, do you bring them into to the conversation about what you're doing? So what do you think? I think it's a good idea, but I but I do appreciate that Peter addresses and the, the advice that he gives. And he says, you, you might want to have been doing it for a while and ask your students what they've noticed has been different lately. And they might notice, hey, you haven't answered any of my questions. And maybe this is going to happen organically because they're frustrated yeah. with me. But then What's you can engage them in the why, right? Why are we doing this? Why do you think I'm not answering your questions? Because I think that will lead to a really interesting conversation with your students. I've had that conversation with students. Mm -hmm. Students that I don't even know that well because of my role and how I go in and out of classrooms. But but Peter sums this up perfectly. And I think it applies to many of the practices we're talking about in this book. I'll just read this quote from page 92. It says, students perceive pre-implementation conversations as asking for permission and post-implementation discussions as inviting them into the reasons behind it. Those are very, very different conversations to have with your students. And if we allow them to like opt out of things ahead of time, that's going to really impact the thinking and the effectiveness of them. What's your take? Well, yeah, I do think so too, because when I come in, like, so I came into my class, my four or five class, and I was like, this is what I do. Sorry. Like, you know, and so, and that was day one. I was like, you don't know me, Mrs. MG here. This is how I teach math. So, and if you're going to, to do it like that, you can start bringing them into those conversations earlier. But I think, especially if it's like halfway through the year and you're like, we're going to try something, kids. It's like, no, we're not trying something. This is the new math. This is what it is, folks. Yeah. We're just going to do it. I, I think the train we're going. And that kind of connects to all the advice we've been hearing and giving throughout this whole thinking classroom process. Dive into this, try this, and then unpack it with your students maybe partway through or after they yeah. start to ask you those questions. Well, to quote Gail Russell quoting, like an Egan Chernoff quoting Nike, just do it. Yeah. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> and now we can come to you in a future episode. I love Fantastic. It. I can't um, wait. <laughs> I think it's a good place to stop here, Megan. Next, we're, we're going to do another chapter right away here. Talking about chapter six, the when, where, and how tasks are given at the end classroom. Oh, I really support to that because it's such a disruption to what we usually do. Um, we were joking ahead of time. We hope we didn't answer any of your questions because that's our goal with this chapter. But uh, we hope you'll tune in for the next one. And uh, don't be afraid to connect with us on Twitter or however you want to. We'd love to hear from anyone who's been nice enough to listen to us through this. See you guys. Thanks for tuning in to Think, Thank, Thunk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss a new episode. And as always, keep thinking, keep thinking, and keep thunking.